VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It's The Big Take from Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, the daily diets of people around the world are starting to look more and more alike, and not in a good way. Go to a restaurant these days, and there's a decent chance the menu will boast how the chef uses only local, seasonal ingredients. But the fact is, in our daily lives, most of us are eating an ever-narrower selection of the thousands of edible plants the planet has to offer. And many of them are from big industrial producers like the U.S. that grow vast amounts of grain and export it the world over. Diets in Beijing and Boston were once pretty different. Now, the Western diet, carb-heavy pizza, bread, and fast food, has spread across the globe. Here's a non-scientific survey. We gathered a somewhat arbitrary group of people from all over the place. I live in Canada. England. India. I live in Rwanda. I live in France. The US. I'm from Scotland. I do live in Turkey. I'm an Australian living in the United Kingdom. I live in Italy. I live in the Netherlands. I live in Norway. And we asked them, what's your favorite takeout, the food you crave? My favorite takeaway is Indian food. Certainly something Southeast Asian. Pad Thai. They say they're usually like a burrito or some kind of wrap. Pide, which is like a Turkish version of pizza, so bread, of course. My go-to is usually any Mexican. Sushi. Can only be pizza. McDonald's and uh, pizza. I really do enjoy a good fast food chicken sandwich. My favorite takeaway is pizza. My favorite takeaway is tacos. My favorite takeaway is probably Thai. So why does it matter if tacos and pizza are taking over the planet and our diets include more foods made from grains, fruits, and vegetables that are shipped in from far away? My colleagues Jasmine Ung and Jin Wu join me now from Singapore to explain. They're out with a deeply reported story about some of the unexpected risks posed by this increasing global dependency on a handful of crops. Jasmine Ung and Jin Wu, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here, Wes. In your story, you write about this enormous global trend, which is that diets around the world are becoming more and more alike, where before around the world people would eat differently, would eat local foods now, people are eating the same sorts of foods. Can you describe what's happened? So our story is based on this idea that, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, our diets are looking more and more similar. And in the past 60 years or so, the biggest changes that we have seen are in Asia and Africa, 
towards a more universal diet. And what that looks like is something that resembles a typical Western diet. You know, things like hamburgers, sandwiches, steaks, potato chips, and even cakes. And while it's true that on a country-by-country basis, chances are that we have access to a wider variety of food than our parents or grandparents did. But as a whole, you know, that shift is causing the whole world to become overly dependent on a handful of staple crops. And they are mainly rice, wheat, and maize, and which is, you know, the same as corn. And in fact, today, over 60% of the world's daily calorie intake is made up of just those three staple crops. Around the world, you're saying 60% of our calories are coming from just those three crops. That's right. And we're seeing those crops become a bigger and bigger part of mealtime. And those are displacing, you know, native crops like cassava and sorghum, which were once very important to local diets. But today, some people might not even have heard about them. We asked the same group of people you heard earlier professing their love for pizza and fast food, among other things, how important bread, the quintessential wheat product, is to them. Bread is very important. It's one of our staples and we buy it every week. Bread is really important for me. I like it a lot and I eat it every day. And for me, bread is essential for lunch and dinner. Very important. Bread is obviously very important to me as well as to the country. Uh, Very important. Growing up, there was a loaf of Italian bread on the table at dinner every night. I don't think bread is very important to me. I feel like it's one of my staples that I could most easily go without. Bread is a pretty important part of a a Turkish diet. How important is bread to me? It's very important, actually. (laughs) I really love bread. I think, uh, I mean, mean in all my life for breakfast, sometimes lunch, sometimes for dinner. I eat bread every single day, I guess, about two or three slices every day. So I'd say it's pretty important. Bread is pretty important to me, It's very important. Bread is really important to me. It's a part of my daily life. Jin, how did our diets all converge? There are a lot of factors behind this increasing similarities. Economic growth and rising incomes are definitely a big reason why we're seeing these massive changes, mainly in Asia and Africa. You know, with people moving away from basic staples and adding more meat dairy, and processed foods. And the other thing is industrial mass production, and it's also a key driver. It has happened in every industry, including you know, agriculture and food. There's a lot that goes into industrializing our food system, uh, from the companies that sell seeds and fertilizers to farmers, to the producers who buy the raw ingredients and process them, and, and eventually to the consumers. So this seemingly efficient system has contributed to our prosperity. It helps businesses reap economies of scale and produce really large quantities of food for our massive population across the globe for a relatively small price. Jin, can you give some examples of what you're talking about? How would a diet, say, in China or Singapore, where you are right now, in Japan or in countries in Africa... How would they have been 60 years ago, and what do they look like now? Yeah, it's great you mentioned China, because China is actually one of the biggest changes we observed from our analysis. And I think that was highly related to its booming economy in the past several decades. So, you know, Chinese consumers now have access to more choices of food, especially with all the restaurants selling foreign cuisines. And they can afford more expensive ingredients such as, you know, meat and seafood. 
So take my personal experience as an example. Actually, I grew up in China, and my parents still live there. For them, a typical breakfast nowadays often includes bread, milk, eggs, and sometimes cereal. And almost every day after dinner, they would also have some yogurt. These were not something we usually ate when I was little. Back in my childhood, like twenty plus thirty years ago, a typical breakfast included a bowl of congee or something we call pao fan. You know, you you just put water into a bowl of、uh, leftover rice,、uh, some soy milk or fan tuan, like rice rolls. So basically, a lot of rice. And if we look back even further to the nineteen sixties and seventies, a typical Chinese diet might include a lot of sweet potatoes and buns or pancakes made from sorghum flour, millets, or maize. Of course, China is very big, so the diets look different in various provinces. But in general, very little protein, as the disposable income of an ordinary Chinese consumer was much lower back then. And many things were not even available, even if you had money. But if we fast forward to now, pork has become China's most widely eaten meat. It's actually providing about 10% of our daily calorie intake. So every weekend morning, the cafes across the nation are also packed with people grabbing French toasts and coffee. And we hardly eat food made with. Millet and sorghum anymore. You know the main things I mentioned in the 1960s diet. And to many people, sweet potato is something healthy that actually they eat once in a while just to gain more fibers. Imagine if you go to a restaurant with a friend and she orders a plate of food that represents the 1961 Chinese diet, and you get one that represents the Chinese diet as of 2019. They will look very different. So we've talked about how the industrialization and mass production of certain foods spreading around the world is contributing to our diets, kind of converging and becoming more alike. You write in your story about how imports have become a big part of this. That countries used to grow a lot of their own foods, and more and more now they're getting their foods from a smaller number of countries. Yeah, that's right. So, what these dietary changes mean is that there is now a greater competition for a limited number of crops. And the war in Ukraine and the impact it's had on food prices and supply around the world is a very clear example why having similar diets is a problem. Earlier this year, we saw you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine cut off exports from a region that is known as the breadbasket of the world because it accounts for a quarter of global wheat trade. And on top of that, we had bad weather like droughts, flooding. Heat waves that damage production of wheat from the U.S. to France to India, and just about every major producing region was facing one threat on another, and the result was rampant food inflation. You know, food prices were soaring everywhere, and for import-dependent countries, the shock was huge. The countries most affected tend to be those in the global south, and many of them are lower-middle to lower-income countries, mainly in Africa and the Middle East. And you know, Egypt is the world's top importer of wheat. And buys most of its supply from Russia and Ukraine. And after the war, you know there were reports of bread lines, concerns that such countries would be at risk of bread shortages, and there were fears that this would lead to political unrest similar to Arab Spring. And it's not just the emerging countries that experience problems. You know, there are also issues for rich countries. The war in Ukraine has curbed exports of grains and vegetable oils, which pushed global prices to record highs, and that added to pressures from the pandemic. 
from high energy costs and also labour shortages in developed countries. And in the UK, we saw, you know, grocery inflation hit the highest in decades. You know, British shoppers are having to switch to discount supermarkets and buying more store brand items. And they're cutting back on non-essential spending and buying, you know, wonky vegetables or imperfect produce just to try to save money. And in the US, at the recent Thanksgiving, price increases for flour and cookies hit a record high for October. And all of these products are made from wheat. And there are reports of bread costing as much as $10 a loaf in some places. And it's very ironic because US is one of the largest wheat exporters in the world. And you know, this just goes to show that no country, whether you're a producer or consumer, a developed or developing nation, can be insulated from price spikes and supply shocks when the world is all going after the same few staple crops. My conversation with Jasmine Ong and Jin Wu continues after the break. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Jin, can you tell us what are the countries mainly responsible for exporting these goods around the world? And what are the countries that are mainly dependent on importing all of these grains and other global products? So what we find from our reporting and analyzing data from the United Nations is that majority, or if not all, all of these major staple crops, the supplies of export were controlled by a very small number of countries. And for many of these major crops, these kind of exports were controlled by higher income nations, which making the most vulnerable countries even more vulnerable. We can take rice as an example. And rice is actually one of the few staple crops that's not heavily controlled by higher income countries because we know like India is actually a very big producer and exporter of rice. And we also have Asian countries like Thailand, Vietnam, Pakistan, and then followed by U.S. 
and that's what the rice export control looks like. But if you go to crops like wheat, a、uh, wheat is a crop that has huge problems over the years due to the war in Ukraine, and one of the major exporter of wheat was we all know that Russian and Ukraine's. But most of the other major exporters of wheat are countries like U.S.,、uh, Canada, France, Australia. So if we look at the country categorization by income groups, all of the low-income countries are net importers of wheat, and majority of the lower-income countries, like lower-middle-income countries, are also net importer of wheat, except countries like India and and Ukraine. Jin, how has this consolidation of diets affected health? I mean, the Western diet, people want it, but it's not known as exactly the world's healthiest diet. It's high in carbs, it's high in fat. Has that affected the health of people who are now moving toward a Western diet as opposed to traditional diets? In actually many countries, there is this. Quite interesting, but also troublesome situation going on. It's like we have undernutrition and obesity happening at the same time, and these two issues are actually increasingly connected due to rapid changes in countries' food systems. One big reason why it happened was our high reliance on processed or sometimes like ultra-processed food. You know, it's food that's made by、uh, industrial processing. And often contains additives such as flavors, colors. So a bag of sliced bread is an ultra-processed food. A piece of cake is. A pizza could be. A, a fruit yogurt could be ultra-processed food. A, a scoop of ice creams that you eat often is also part of that. And of course, instant noodles. I think this increasing popularity of Western diets, like you mentioned. In many cases, are could be fast food, you know, instant food,、It、definitely brings a lot of health concerns to the global populations. You know, there are health risks associated with a global diet that depends on just a few staple crops. People around the world are consuming more calories, more protein, more fat, as they rely on a short list of food crops like wheat, maize, and soybean, along with meat and dairy products. So, this westernized diet that's sweeping the world has contributed to a rise in global obesity. Which has, you know, nearly tripled since the 1970s. It's also led to the spread of metabolic diseases like diabetes. And in both poor and rich countries, you know, people are just seeking out the lowest cost calories, and that might exclude things that make up a balanced diet, like you know, fruits and vegetables, because they tend to cost more. And the result is malnutrition, which is defined by number one, you know, not just having enough to eat, and two, not eating enough of the right things. So eating a lot isn't just unhealthy and boring. It's like owning a portfolio with very few stocks, and it's very vulnerable to any kind of disaster. One other thing that you write about is how this reliance on fewer and fewer crops has led to neglected crops. What are neglected crops, and what is the effect of that? We have like five thousand fruit crops globally. We are actually now only eating a very small array of them. So. There was this idea of、uh, neglected crops, sometimes also being called underutilized crops. They are usually domesticated species used in previous centuries for food, but in recent times have been reduced in importance. 
So many experts actually believe these neglected crops might provide an answer to our food system problems, as many of them are more climate resilient and actually richer in nutrients. I want to bring in Stefan Schmitz here. He's executive director of Crop Trust, and he spends his days thinking about what foods people eat and where it comes from. We'll hear more from him in a minute, but he has an interesting point to make about what Jasmine just said. We had more than 500 apple varieties in Europe 100 years ago. When you look at genetics of apples these days, they derive from just six varieties we all know. And that is a very dangerous narrowing of the corridor. We need to build on the diversity we have. The diversity of food is the raw material for breeding new varieties. What we see as the current and potential future disruptions in trade, we start to see more and more governments actually thinking about bringing back these marginalized crops as alternate staples. But in order for many of these neglected crops to become a staple, a robust supply chain actually will be essential. That might include things such as improving farmers' yields and maybe modernizing how these crops are actually processed. Jin Wu and Jasmine Ong, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Wes, for the pleasure. Thank you for having us, Wes. When we come back, what are developing countries doing in the face of all this? And what does it mean for the developed world? Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Stefan Schmitz joins me now. He's the executive director of Crop Trust based in Bonn, Germany. Stefan, thanks so much for being here. Hi. 
Can you tell us what Crop Trust does? The Global Crop Diversity Trust, or Crop Trust for short, was established 18 years ago to provide support, to provide funding for seed banks, for gene banks around the globe. Those gene banks host the collections of the most important crops that will secure uh, food security uh, for mankind in the future. And so this is really an enormous vault filled with all varieties of species to protect them from extinction? Yes, all crops, all plants that are suitable for consumption, for agriculture, is collected in various gene banks around the globe. And uh, we provide funding, we provide support in particular to those gene banks in the global south that do not have the capacities to provide funding themselves. And this plays very well into the conversation that we're having here today, which is all about diversity in the food that people eat around the world and how what used to be a great variety of crops has now narrowed to relatively few that people consume. Yes, absolutely. It is amazing what mankind, what farmers around the world over the last 12,000 years created. Amazing diversity. There are 20,000 edible plants on Earth. 6,000 of them have historically been used as food. Just nine account for two-thirds of food production. These are the usual suspects we all know. It's wheat, it's rice, it's maize, uh, potato, and, and so on. But we must not forget that there is an incredible diversity of edible plants, old land races, also the crop wild relatives that are so important for food security when we are facing climate change in particular. Can you describe how this would affect the global supply? Yes, those varieties of wheat, for example, we use today will in many cases no longer be suitable for planting and harvesting in 20, 30 years from now. When it's warmer, when plants need to be better adapted to longer droughts, to higher rainfall. So breeders start to look now for those old varieties and crop wild relatives that are in nature that holds the genetic traits that are able to cope better with heat and drought. And they have to use these old varieties for breeding purposes, to bring these old traits back into the crops for the future. How are those old versions of these crops being brought back? Is this something that is being taken from the seed banks to try growing them? Exactly. That is exactly where the seed banks, where the gene banks come into play. They house thousands of old varieties of wheat and maize and rice, 
but also those thousands of varieties of lesser known uh, species like um, a sorghum or millet. The scientists and breeders today know where those old varieties are housed. We have established a huge information system so everybody knows around the world which old varieties are collected in gene banks. And those scientists, those breeders can ask for duplicates of those varieties. They will receive it and then they use it for their breeding purposes. That is not an easy job. It sometimes takes years. It's try and error. You need many growing cycles till you get to that point where a new variety is ready to be planted and harvested. When you look down the road, do you see that we are going to have a different future that includes many different kinds of grains? I am convinced that 10, 20 years from now, we will have a complete different landscape of what we see as crops growing in the fields. There will be other crops and there will be a greater variety again. We do not have any other choice. We have to start today being prepared for that future and make use of the diversity we have and create a newer uh, diversity. So Stefan, give us a preview. When we go into a grocery store, when we go into a restaurant a decade from now, what are some of the foods we're going to be eating that we would not even think of today? Perhaps millet. Let's take millet. Compared to wheat, it requires less water input, can withstand higher temperatures. So in future, I see a great opportunity for millet to be grown 10, 20, 30 years from now. And I'm sure that it will appear on the menu of restaurants in many parts of the world. We have to change our diets anyway. And that is, again, where seed banks come into play. There are seed banks that house hundreds and thousands of different kinds of fruits and legumes that are ready to be used for more healthy diets in the future. Today, many people around the world simply cannot afford fruit and vegetables. So we have to put more effort into research, into breeding of new varieties of fruits and vegetables to make it affordable for people all around the world. Stefan Schmitz, thanks so much for speaking with me today. You can read more from Jasmine Ung and Jin Wu on Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take the daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to BigTake at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Bergolina. 
Our senior producer is... Catherine Fink. Our producer is... Federica Romagnello. An associate producer is... Zenab Siddiqui. Hilda Garcia. Is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Hey there, it's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.